everyone would please rise for the reading of the Word of God. Today's passage will be Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. That will be on page 498 of the Blue Bibles uh, in front of you in each of those chairs. If you don't have a Bible at home, Northridge would like to give one of those Blue Bibles to you. You feel free to take them if you so choose. And we'll begin reading. This is the Word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. These are the words of God himself. Let's pray for what we're about to hear. Father, we thank you for this message. We we thank you for every message. Every word of God proves true, the scriptures tells us. All scriptures given by inspiration of God, the scriptures tell us. But Lord, this particular passage, Lord, is the passage on which we have staked all of our hopes, all of our faith, the love of which we have for you flows from this passage. This wonderful announcement that he is not here, for he is risen. We thank you for that, God. God, and yet we confess that we have grown in a a, a negative way, way too familiar with this reality. And so, God, I'm asking for a unique work of the Holy Spirit that as we investigate these things afresh, Lord, that you would make them fresh to us, Lord, that we would remember what it means that you are not dead, that you have risen and that you reign and that you are interceding for us at the right hand of the Father and that you will come again and and make all things new. And we thank you for that, God. God, I pray that you would just help me to communicate the magnitude, in some way, the depth of this truth to this congregation of your people, God. I pray that your people would be attentive and that their ears would be opened by the Holy Spirit to hear and receive the joyful news and that they would respond as those first witnesses to the, to the truth that you are risen, God and follow you, and proclaim you, and go everywhere telling about you until they meet their end and go to see you, God. We thank you for this. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So for the last two weeks, we've looked at the mockery and the contempt that Jesus endured, which culminated, of course, in his crucifixion, Roman instrument of execution, the cross. And we considered the magnitude of his sufferings over the last couple of weeks. And and when I say the magnitude of his suffering, I'm not just speaking of the 
the physical pain or the shame that he experienced. We've seen at least three comforting realities, and I'm certain that there's more, that are illuminated by what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. And we've tried to show you that the suffering he bore was first substitutionary. And guess what? If you don't know this, that's really, really good news for you. Because what it means is, what you deserved, Christ took. And what, uh, what Christ took, you, uh, uh, was deserved by you. You should have died that death. You should have suffered that shame. You were destined for all of that. And Christ intervened. In terminology of this day, he would, he stepped in front of the bullet. The innocent incarnate son of God died in place of all of Adam's fallen race who would be called by him, who would believe in him, who would demonstrate that belief by repentance. It wasn't truly his cross, but it was ours. And that's what makes the cross so magnificent. His death was what we all deserved, and yet we were spared. And Romans, Paul in the book of Romans puts this, So beautifully, he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, before anybody had made any moral proclamations, any change in our character while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we also saw not only that it was substitutionary, but that it was effective. During the Christmas season, one of my favorite hymns of that season is O Holy Night, in which we declare, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Since Adam's fall, all humanity laid not only under the guilt of sin, but the curse that that guilt brings. Ezekiel 18.20 says so clearly, The soul that sins shall die. But in Christ... The penalty of sin is paid for, and the guilt of sin is atoned for. There's nothing at all to be added to his sacrifice. Which leads into the third thing that we have discovered, and that is that his sacrifice is final. The error of Roman Catholicism is that Christ has to be sacrificed again and again for fresh grace, for fresh sins. But the word of God teaches this succinctly, Romans 6.10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Can someone say amen to that? And this is why he cried at his death, as Jim told us last week, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. The debt is over. The debt of sin is forever canceled for those who believe. So thanks Be to God for the cross. We revel in the cross. We glory in the cross. As Paul says in Galatians, we boast in the cross. We look to the cross. We've sung about the cross today over and over and over again. But here's the deal. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, argues that the power of Christ's atoning work is not found in his death alone. But in his death, followed by his resurrection. Apart from the resurrection, if Christ had just died for us, his death would be heroic, 
It would be inspiring on some level. But it could never be redemptive, never, if Christ remained dead. This is how Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians 14, we'll skip ahead to verse 17. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, I'm wasting my time up here. If Christ is raised, there's nothing to celebrate. There's nothing to proclaim. And worse than that, your faith is in vain. Everything you're doing here, you should be at home sleeping in today. If Christ is not raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And I got bad news for you. You're still in your sins. No matter what prayers you've prayed, no matter what religious activities you've engaged in, you are still in your sins if Christ is not raised. But three times, three times we've read in Mark's gospel, as he did both in Matthew and Luke, Christ predicted for his disciples that the details of his suffering at the hands of the Jews, at the hands of the Romans. But every single time he predicted these awful things, he finished those predictions with a promise of his resurrection. He even proclaimed to them that not only that he would rise, but that he would do it in three days. Without an empty tomb, Christ's death is at best an act of martyrdom. But without Christ's resurrection, at worst, it's a cosmic failure. It's a cruel joke. It's the shameful demise of just one other failed false prophet of whom the first century in Israel had many of those. Just another one dying at the hands of the Romans. But Mark begins this final chapter of his gospel account with what has become the pulsating center of the universe of our faith in Christ, of our hope in Christ, of our love for Christ, that Christ has indeed risen from the grave. Verse 1 says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now the setting of these events is the day after the Sabbath, which was the divinely prescribed day of rest. Not just starting at the Ten Commandments, but starting all the way back in the day of Genesis. And I loved, as I was preparing for this message, I stumbled upon a passage in Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry is a revered Bible commentary commentator from the 17th century. And he wrote this, and it just moved me. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So just a short paragraph. But he says, as he's getting ready to introduce his thoughts on, on uh, Mark 16, he says, Never was there such a Sabbath since the Sabbath was first instituted as this was, which the first words of this chapter tell us was now past. During all this Sabbath, our Lord Jesus lay in the grave. It was to him a Sabbath of rest, but a silent Sabbath. It was to his disciples a melancholy Sabbath spent in tears and fears. Never were the Sabbath services in the temple such an abomination to God as though they had often been so, though they had often been so, as they were now when the chief priests who presided in them had their, blood, their hands full of blood, the blood of Christ. Well, now listen to this. Well, this Sabbath is over. And the first day of the week is the first day of a new world. Isn't that good? Amen. 
Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, who we, we think is good evidence that might be referring to Christ's mother. We know she was named Mary. She, Jesus had a brother named James. And Salome, who is James the disciple and John the disciple's mother, who had witnessed this crucifixion, who were, who, and who Mark tells us at the end of chapter 15, were with Joseph of Arimathea when he placed him in this grave, now arise early on Sunday morning and make their way to the garden cemetery where Jesus has been entombed since Friday night. Because of Jewish Sabbath laws, they've essentially been on lockdown since Friday night. The Sabbath was observed from sundown on Friday until sundown on Saturday. And during those 24 hours, by Jewish law, no work could be done. No business could be conducted in the marketplace. And yet Mark tells us that they had uh, bought spices to anoint him. Well, Brought is also an acceptable translation of the words. They, they, they either bought or brought spices since they had no time to purchase the aloes and fragrances necessary to anoint and embalm Jesus. It's reasonable to, to believe that they may have had a store, as many Jews did, uh, not, not, not a place of business, but a, a stockpile of, of spices and things like that that may have been for their own burial coming up. We knew that Mary had something like that when she anointed Jesus at Simon's house. Um, it, or it may have been for a loved one, an aging parent or something like that. doesn't matter. We know they had the spices. But the primary motivation for this anointing wasn't for the preservation of a corpse like you see in ancient Egypt or even in modern embalming processes. But this was a, a Jewish thing to bestow honor on a lost and cherished loved one. It normally would have taken place sooner, but the arrival of the Sabbath prohibited them from carrying that out. So at the first opportunity, they make their way to the tomb. And these women who have been so faithful, uh, they, they want to bestow this honor upon their Lord. Now John tells us that Joseph and Arimathea, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had also wrapped Jesus' body in, in clean linens and, and applied spices to him there as well, uh, just to, to, uh, for, the, uh, for the, their show of honor. But it's important to note the, encourage, uh, the, the courage of these women. Think about that for a minute. Um, Jesus has been publicly crucified as a criminal, and yet they went to the grave to adore Christ, while the eleven, the eleven men, oh, 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 were in hiding, scared to death. And these women, very early in the morning, at first light, make their way to his tomb. What an honor God is bestowing on them in a time and in a world where men generally thought very little of women, their testimony and their input, as Jim pointed out last week. But on the road, they remember something something comes to their mind and in verse 3 they they were saying to one another that means they're in the process of saying to each other who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb having seen joseph lay christ in the tomb they suddenly remembered oh yeah oh shoot this is an important detail we saw this and we're just now remembering that the tomb had been closed with a giant stone, one so large that none of the three of us could hope to move it. And I'm saying that this question, who will roll away the stone for us, is way more loaded than a historical detail. 
when you're facing things like a brain tumor, you go, who's going to roll this stone away from us? When your marriage is crumbling, you might say, who's going to roll away this stone? Your children are rebelling against the things that you've taught them to, to fear Christ and honor Christ. And you say, man, this stone is too big. I'm not strong enough. Who's going to roll this away from us? Sometimes we set out to do something to serve Christ or to honor Christ or display our love for Christ only to find insurmountable obstacles standing in the way. Perhaps the stone is a lack of wisdom or skill or money or faith. And we realize that we're powerless to do what's necessary in our own strength or resources. And all of those things are generally directed towards those who believe, but is there any greater challenge that we face than ridding ourselves of the guilt of our own sin, the resulting shame? I remember years before I received Christ and and, and bowed my knee to Him as Lord of my life, trying to just deal with the guilt and deal with the shame. And I saw that it was a large stone, and I was like, I can't roll this thing. I can't budge this thing. I'm stuck. If we're honest, the task is too great. And sadly, I was way too corrupt, weakened by sin, to budge that stone, to soften my heart and to kill my sin. But there's more. These women didn't realize that that stone wasn't their only difficulty. See, after Joseph had buried Jesus, the Jewish authorities persuaded Pilate to place the seal of Rome that would be broken under penalty of death. He persuaded him to put the seal of Rome on the tomb and a garrison of soldiers there to guard Jesus' body from zealous grave robbers. But these ladies, fretting, all of their fret, all of their anxiety, all of their fear ended as they raised their eyes to the tomb. Verse 4, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been, past tense, rolled back. And Mark adds this little detail. It was very large. It's a big stone, guys. I love this, that it's written for us in the past tense. Because what happens is, when we put our faith in Christ, either... Initially, or in all the challenges of our sanctification, we so many times we look up and the thing that we are fretting over, we look at, up and we say, wow, it's already been rolled away by the fountain filled with blood that we sang about today. Grace enough has flowed from that fountain, that flowed into that fountain, that all of the stones are rolling away. And isn't that a comforting thought? It was impossible. What was impossible for them, God did with a word of command. The massive stone was rolled from the opening of the tomb. The seal was broken by a higher authority than Rome. And the soldiers guarding the tomb were knocked out cold. And so their question of who will roll it away was answered by a show, the first show of resurrection power. To these ladies, the scene must have looked chaotic. We always think, oh, that's sweet. They saw the stone rolled away. Can you imagine walking into a graveyard, seeing the mausoleum busted wide open? 
and, and two soldiers slobbering all over themselves, laying down on the grass, you would not think, oh, how, let's stop here and worship for a minute. You would think, what is going on? It looked chaotic. It looked distressing. It didn't look hopeful. It didn't look encouraging. And then again, another reminder, sometimes God's deliverance, raise your hand if you've experienced this, can look like a disruption, not a solution. Ever experienced that, anybody? You're like, what are you doing? What's going on here? This is because their faith is limited by unbelief in this self-constructed expectation of the way things ought to be. And God just busts open the stones, lays out the soldiers, rips the seal apart. So very cautiously, these trembling ladies edge their way inside the tomb. That takes guts. How many of you want to hang out in a grave, any kind of grave? And they just kind of, you know, this is a very superstitious age in in the first century. And they just go waltzing right into the tomb. I'm telling you, these are courageous ladies. And entering the tomb, verse 5, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. Yeah, I'll bet. And they said to him, and he said to them rather, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. And see the place where they laid him. And from the other Gospels, we know clearly that the young man was an angelic messenger. What Mark is doing here, he's focusing more on his form than on his identity, which the other Gospel writers do. And this angel is dressed in such a way that they would recognize him as a person of importance. He was not a grave robber. Grave robbers didn't dress like that. He wasn't just a third soldier. No, he was somebody of great importance. And as most any time in the scriptures that humanity encounters the the angelic, they were alarmed. And this word is more than like startled. You know, oh my goodness, didn't see you there. No, it means that they were terrified to their core. They were astounded. They were flabbergasted. They were speechless. They weren't just merely startled by the unexpected presence and appearance of a heavenly agent. They were shaken to their cores, their minds raced to sort out everything they were seeing, a discarded stone, a soldier's knocked out. Now the appearance of this unearthly young man who tells them not to be alarmed. Easy for you to say, Mr. Angel Guy. (laughs) But he hasn't shown up. Listen, listen, listen. The angel did not show up to terrify them. The angel, as so often in the scriptures, did not show up to warn them. And praise God for the first time. Uh, uh, well, there's other times, but but many times in the scriptures when we see angels come to places like Sodom, stand before Ahab, they're coming for judgment. Not this angel. He had a very specific purpose. He had come to comfort them with the most significant proclamation in all of human history. All of past human history, all of their present day, all of future human history, there will never be a more important proclamation than the one that the angel makes standing in that tomb. And this is the proclamation. Jesus who was crucified, who was dead, has risen and is no longer in the grave. 
And this is not just to be regarded as some spiritual rising. There's a huge progressive movement of Christianity now that just says, oh yeah, we believe in the resurrection. We believe that on that day he rose in our hearts. No! It is not a theological mystery. It is a genuine historical fact. And it changes everything. As Matthew Henry said, we read earlier, they are welcome. These three women are the uh, the first welcomed into the first day of a brand new world. Everything is changed with that angel's proclamation. The angel invites them to look and see the place where they saw Joseph lay his dead body just two days prior. Christianity, if you're struggling and trying to figure out where you stand in the Christian faith right now or with the Christian faith, Christianity is unique among world religions because it welcomes questions. It invites investigation. No honest skeptic, honest skeptic has ever successfully stood against the majesty and the truths of the claims of Jesus Christ. They all crumble when they really start to look and listen and believe. But this isn't a time, as wonderful as this announcement is, this isn't a time for these women to just idly ponder what's happened in this garden cemetery. The angel gives them very, very important instructions. He says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he said, just as he told you. And these women, this is a cool thought, that these women are, in a sense, appointed as apostles, as sent ones, that's what that word means, to Christ's own apostles. They are the one to go and proclaim the good news of the gospel to the apostles. And the frightened disciples, hiding for their lives, disappointed at the dissolution of their hopes, And their expectations must hear that Christ is risen. He told them three times that he would rise, but their lack of faith, their hardened hearts got the better of them. The resurrection will soon remedy all of that, and they will believe. The news that he lives carries with it a promise to them. Soon they'll all see him. And you think, man, that must have been awesome. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop the train. The news of Christ's resurrection shares the same promise for you and for me. Soon you will see him. And we're not going to regard him as merely risen in our hearts in a spiritual sense. But as John will go on to write, they would hear him, they would see him and look on him and touch him with their hands. They'd be so transformed by the reality of the resurrected Jesus that all but one of them, and they tried with that guy, but all but one of them would die martyrs' deaths, proclaiming the the resurrection of the Lord, never recanting anything. (laughs) Did you notice I love this. Gosh, thank you, Mark, for writing this. Did you notice how in Mark's gospel, the angel specified that this wonderful news needs to go to one disciple in particular? Tell his disciples and Peter. Peter? The one who bragged that he'd die with Jesus and yet quickly denied that he even knew him three times? 
the violent disciple that as Jesus was being arrested, sliced off the ear of the high priest's servant? That, that Peter? Man. I can only imagine what that must have meant to Peter. The ladies show up, hey, the angel told us we're supposed to tell you specifically, Peter, that you're going to see him. And he wants to see you. He thought he had blown it, that Christ, whom he'd abandoned at the point of his greatest need, would be done with him. Surely his fear over the last three days of the Romans coming for him was compounded by the heavy burden of his own guilt, his own sin before Christ as he died. He watched, you know, he heard that Christ had died and he just had sinned against him. Man, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever arrived here on a Sunday morning? While everyone is singing songs of praise, you can only contemplate your guilt, your unworthiness, your broken promises. See, but Peter was not cut off. He was not excluded from the Savior because of his sin. And neither are you. Christ's resurrection wasn't like the Jewish law. It wasn't a finger-pointing accusation of Peter's guilty status. The resurrection is a remedy, not a, it's a remedy for our guilt, not a reminder of our sin. It's a, it's a remedy for our guilt, a remedy for our shame. And here's the beautiful part. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an invitation to come closer. Come closer. Come closer. Come and see the place where they laid him. He's Go get ready to meet with him. Even before the apostles picked up their pens and over the next several decades, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the New Testament for us to explain the meaning behind all these events, the cross of Christ was already streaming with grace. Isn't that beautiful? Peter got to see this. Standing... You know, it wasn't a misunderstanding. He was guilty before Jesus. And already he's hearing words of grace. It was streaming with grace, unmerited favor that had been purchased by Christ's blood. And this empty tomb was evidence that God had accepted Jesus' sacrifice for the sins of the world and stood up and said, well done. So that his people who he had called before the foundation of the earth could be reconciled to him. See, the resurrection proves several things. It proves that God is for us. And as Romans chapter 8 says, if God is for us, amen. It's God's declaration that we can't work our way to him, but he will do the impossible to make his way to us. It's his promise to overcome both the spiritual death of our souls and one day the physical death of our bodies that plagues us, that curses us, and that he will lead us into life everlasting. It's the demonstration that nothing in this world is worth pursuing as our life's ultimate goal because everything here will end in the grave. But for those who truly believe life begins when this life 
And this world finally loses its grip on our affections and our fears, both now when we die to ourselves and in heaven when we physically die and go there. It's the promise that we have a Savior that will be with us always because he's not dead. He will be guarding, instructing, loving, comforting, and encouraging us. Because not even death is powerful enough to separate us from his eternal care. What a promise. In the last verse, verse 8, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The silence of the women here is clearly only temporary because we know from the other gospel accounts that they did, in fact, quickly report these things to the disciples. And sometimes people are taken back by Mark's gospel. They don't like the report that these women fled trembling, that they were astonished and afraid. But first of all, on first examination, can you just put yourself in their shoes, walk a mile or so? They had seen the person that they loved more than all others in this world brutally murdered. And now they've heard the announcement that, guess what? He's alive. Could you have processed that on a dime? Could you have done that quickly? I think not. Perhaps they thought it was too good to be true. Perhaps they wondered what a resurrected Jesus might look like. Let's not pretend we don't think these things. Would they be met when they finally were reunited by those familiar gentle eyes or by an unrecognizable mass of scar tissue? What they did know from the very moment was that something amazing, something divine had taken place. And that they were both the first witnesses and the first heralds of it. And so they went forth with the message as instructed, and soon the flood of grace pouring out of that tomb overflowed its banks and covered the entire Roman Empire within one single generation. And my prayer today is may it continue to flow mightily. Amen? So what does the resurrection mean to you? Is it a dusty old Sunday school story that, if you're honest, has no real-world significance in your 9-to-5 raise-your-kids-pay-your-bills world? My call to you is this. Return to the empty tomb in your heart right now. By faith, walk in. See the place that he laid. Hear the joyful proclamation of the angel. He is not here because he's risen. Reorient your life around that single reality and watch as grace flows over you and your family like a river. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for Nothing less significant than the fact that Jesus is risen. That in the book of Revelation, Jesus declares, I am he who was dead and now lives. And God, we know that he will never die again. He has put away not only our sin, but death forever. Death 
who was our violent enemy, is now our faithful friend. Because it is now the the agent that will transfer us from this life into the next one. God, for that, we thank you. We thank you for the death of your son, for the resurrection of your son, for the reign of your son in heaven now, and for the return of your son, which will be. We thank you for that. God, I do just confess that, Lord, I go days, I go weeks without thinking deeply about the power of your resurrection. Would you just forgive me for that? Lord, help my life be just transformed and conformed to the reality of your resurrection. As Paul said, that I may know you in the power of your resurrection as I share in your sufferings. Lord, let that be the case with me. Let it be the case with my brothers and sisters gathered here today. We thank you, Lord. Be praised forever and eternally, not by everyone else, but by us for what you've done by coming out of the grave. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I could have our communion helpers come forward and uh, help us to serve communion today. Great. Man, uh, what a powerful uh, reality is, is illustrated for us in this, in this sacrament as we've just considered the resurrection of our Lord. I, I, I love that in the other, in the gospel accounts of the, the Last Supper that Jesus says, uh, that he will not drink of this cup again until he drinks anew of it in the, in his kingdom. And, um, guess who's going to be sharing that cup with him? You are. I am. And what a great, what a great day that will be for us when we stand in his kingdom. And, and, um, uh, this is our proclamation as, as, uh, Paul tells us in, in the words of institution that we are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are, and, and in that is implied his life, that he not only died for us, he lives for us. And these elements, his body, his blood, represent for us our life. What represented his death or symbols of his death represent our life. And so we take gladly, we take joyfully, we take, uh, you know, soberly and we do our, our, our examination of ourselves. but we come joyful because we know we are not here by our performance. We're here by grace. Amen. And so if you are here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I joyfully invite you to this table to come and receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and you can take them, and we'll take them together in a minute. But if you're not a believer, please remain where you are, seek one of us out, let us share the gospel with you, and know whether you do that or not that we're praying for you, that your heart would crumble before the Lord and you would be made new. So for the rest of you, go ahead and come and receive these elements, and we'll take them together in just a moment. Paul writes for us in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way also, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For 
As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's joyfully take this cup together. Now let's turn our attention to heaven and give thanks for this inexpressible gift. Father, thank you so much again. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for laying down your life and and shedding your blood for us. Lord, we joyfully proclaim your death. We proclaim the efficacy of your death. We proclaim the victory of your resurrection. Lord, we we claim the promise of your return. We take comfort in the fact that you are reigning and, and interceding for us right now, God. We thank you so much, Jesus. Holy Spirit, make these realities more real to us every day. Help our faith to grow and strengthen and to live like the apostles did in the hope of the resurrection forsaking everything else in jesus name we pray amen if you would place your hands in a receiving position i want to read you these beautiful words uh, from the apostle peter blessed be the god of our father and the lord jesus christ according to his great mercy guess what he did he has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable undefiled unfading kept in heaven for you who by god's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in the name of the father in the name of the son in the name of the holy spirit amen you are dismissed